Good morning. If you'd like to go ahead and open your Bibles to Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. We're going to spend the biggest majority of our time this morning in the book of Nehemiah. But before you get there, I would like to start off by saying welcome. Uh, especially like to say welcome to our visitors. Joe and Paula have been good friends to us for a long time. It's, a, it's definitely encouraging to see them here with, with their granddaughters. I know Ryder is, is happy to see them and, and see his friends that he hasn't seen in a while. And I'd like to thank... I'd like to thank Charles for the passage that he read this morning because that passage in Genesis, it reminds me so much. If, if you've ever studied apologetics, if you've ever studied how we can know the Bible is the true Bible, one thing that we, that we like to look at is in Genesis, the, the genealogy from Adam to Noah and how those, these early accounts uh, of the Bible, of, of the creation, these were things that were only known by one man. That Noah would have passed, the, or not Noah, excuse me, Adam would have passed this on to his sons. And when we take all those those dates, those those years that Adam lived and his sons lived, we can add all those up, and you can see that within a pretty close proximity, Adam lived to about the time of Noah. Adam would have died roughly about 150 years before Noah was born. And so when you think of the source, uh, the the sole man that w- that witnessed so much in the garden, lived to, to tell his, his grandchildren and great-grandchildren that he was there. If they had a, Can you explain that to me one more time? Great-grandfather Adam, can you tell me about that again? It can help us to really know that the Word that we have today, that's just another way that we can know that it's the true Word. So I really appreciate that, that passage that he read, and I really have always liked to think about that. And with thinking of that, how this Word, this true Word of God... I would like to consider two words today. The majority of our focus is going to be on these two words. The first word is majesty. Majesty, it is described or defined in the dictionary as an impressive stateliness, impressive dignity or beauty. That's the first definition. The second definition is that of royal power. Now this word majesty, we've heard it several times in our lifetime, I'm sure. We know this word. It's not a word that's really that foreign to us. We think sometimes of maybe like the Rocky Mountains. And we see the Rocky Mountains in all their majesty. We're talking about the beauty of the Rocky Mountains or the Grand Canyon or some other natural formation on this earth that we really think is amazing. Well, we also heard it in the other, in another sense. You think of maybe the Queen of England or kings and queens and, and, and these places that have this monarchy. A lot of times they're referred to as your majesty. Her majesty's will for you to do this. So we, we know these words majesty. But so often in the Bible, God is described and His majesty is described. And I want to take a moment this morning to just consider how, how His majesty is shown to us. And the first thing I think of is through His creation. Through His creation, God's majesty is shown. I think of plants and how they reflect God's majesty. We think of plants and how they are, they are beautiful. Some of them are, are, are incredibly good to look at. Uh, there's not very many women that would say, I sure do wish that there were just no more flowers on this earth because there are many women that just enjoy having a nice bouquet of flowers delivered to them. We can see how that can lift our spirits. We think of how they, they smell good, how they have medicinal values. If you've ever, uh, if you've ever studied some uh, several plants, and I'm sure there's some of you in here that have, there's a plant in your own yard called plantain. 
It's a weed, and we do our best to kill it. But that plant has a lot of nutritional or or of medicinal values. In fact, at one time, in in, uh, I believe it was the the early Civil Wars and Revolutionary Wars, it was considered soldier salve because of its its ability to stop blood flow and and to to pack a wound. So we see that that there's all these amazing things that these plants that God has created uh, that they do for us. We see the nutritional values of the vegetables that we eat. And the fruits that we eat. But, but I want to focus on, on probably my favorite plant of all, and that's grass. We think grass, well, how can grass be, be that amazing? Grass is such a humble plant, in my opinion, because grass is insignificant. In fact, grass, we don't even hardly think about grass until it's time to cut it. Or until it's getting maybe you know brown as my front yard is right now and, and dying. And that's about the only time we ever consider grass. In fact, we can literally say we tread uh, grass is tread underfoot. We walk all over grass. But grass is made just like you and me. Grass was made, it was designed with basic needs. Grass has a need for water. Grass has a need for sustenance and food. But grass was given a superhuman ability, an ability that we don't have, uh, and that is the ability to gain all of its food from the sun. This idea of photosynthesis. And, and, and it's really amazing to me what grass can do. If you can put a camera out on your yard and, and watch grass very closely in slow motion throughout the day, grass actually bends itself to gather sunlight. It'll start out one way. The blades will be facing the sun. And as that sun goes across the sky, the blades actually turn, getting as much light as they can from that sun. And so I, when I think of this, I just think of the, that, that shows the majesty of God through His creation, how He created something so intricate. In a blade of grass, something that we are not going to ever give too much thought to. That shows God's majesty to me. The sky, the sky itself shows God's majesty. You look out this morning on our way here and just see a, a, a smorgasbord of color. We see these, these really bright blues and a, and a beautiful pink and these deep oranges and, and reds and just think you know, how beautiful the sky is. And I, actually, when I was preparing for this sermon, uh, it's been a few months ago, I asked Ryder, uh, we were driving in the Jeep, I said, Ryder, why do you think the sky's blue? Just curious what his five-year-old mind would, would consider. Why do you think the sky is blue? And he was quiet for a while, and I really didn't think he was focusing on the question much. When he finally chimed in, he said, well, I guess it's just because that's the way God made it. And I thought, well, that's, that's a great answer. Why didn't I think of that? That's just the way God made it. He intended for it to be blue. And in studying through science, we can know more about how that works, how that happens, and with the way that the light coming at different angles reflects through these fragments of dust that are suspended in our atmosphere. That the, the amazingness behind that, how, how a beam of light, depending on what angle, can come through as this bright blue, as we might go out and see today, but in the evening it changed to a really dark red or, or, a, or a, a yellow or an orange. And while we're thinking of our atmosphere, I think of stars and space. I think of how when God created the earth, He set it the optimum distance from the sun. We have learned now that if we were much closer, much farther away, things would be incredibly colder or much incredibly warmer. And life on this planet would be very difficult to say the least. But God set the sun and He set the sun right where He wanted it and the earth right where He wanted it and made it so that it was the optimum distance. And thinking of these distances, I like to think of this, the size of our own galaxy that we live in, the Milky Way galaxy. I want you to imagine for a moment that the distance from our earth, where God, God set the earth where He wants it, He sets the sun, and that distance in between is 93 million miles. 
Now I want you to consider that we take that 93 million miles and we scale it down to about the thickness of this sheet of paper here. So we got this at this point in our in our idea here. This is 93 million miles. Now, if we were to make a model and show the the diameter of the Milky Way galaxy, the galaxy in which our planet is housed in, we would need a stack of papers 310 miles high. 310 miles high. Now, for you that are really good with math and, and already know the answer to this, that's 28,833,000,000 miles. Now, I'm not good with math, so I had to write that down on a calculator and figure that out. But this, the sheer size of this little tiny corner of the galaxy that God created, it shows me this impressive beauty, this stateliness and dignity. I'm so impressed and, and, and so awe-stricken by the, the majesty of God's creation. Another thing in this creation I think about are the mountains. The mountains are, are my home. That's where I love to be is the mountains. In fact, one of my greatest favorite quotes uh, from, from a non-biblical sense is that of John Muir. The mountains are calling and I must go. I just love being in the mountains. I love the serenity, the peace of, of standing atop of a large mountain and looking down and seeing what I imagine God saw when He looked down on the earth and saw it below Him and saw that it was good. I look down and just love to vision Maybe what it would look like without all of man's touches. Just what, what God had originally intended and originally made on, on His planet. In fact, not too long ago, it's, it's been about a year ago, I had the opportunity to, uh, to hike up into the Red River Gorge. And, and me and my brother and uh, a good friend of ours, Stephen, we all were hiking and trying to find the spot to do a little rock climb. And me and, and Holly and, and my brother and him, we rock climb a little bit. So we were trying to find a good spot that we could, that we could climb. And uh, as we were climbing through this thicket, it was just so, I remember it was so thick, you couldn't see very far in front of you. It was in the early spring and, and the vines had grown up from the bottom and the thorns were thick and they, our legs were, were cut and bloody and it was really not a whole lot of fun. And I remember thinking, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? This, this is something for, for, for kids to be doing. I don't need to be doing this. But I remember as we, as we walked along, we pushed ahead and, and I moved some trees and branches out of my way. This, this opening was in front of us. And what we had walked up on, and we didn't really know that we were doing this, but we had walked up on this huge rock face. And it was about 100 feet down on our, on our left-hand side, just straight down. But what we looked out and saw was that we were over top of every tree in the forest. Every tree to the left of us, we were above it, looking down on, on these, these 40, 60, 70-foot tall trees. And I just remember thinking, wow. Wow, just looking at it and thinking... This, this is a sight that we, don't, that we just miss sometimes. These sights, these cre- things that God has created. And when I see that, I can't help but, but have awe. I can't help but remember that this is, this is a reflection of, of God. This is what God has, has created with His hands, with, with His thoughts, with His words. He has spoken into existence. And that shows me, personally, His majesty. But I don't want to stop at just His creation because there's something else that even more so uh, in my life shows me the majesty of God. And that is His Word. His Word shows me the majesty. As we talked about, we can have all confidence that His Word, the recorded Word that we have, is, is true. But we also know that it has unity to it. It has unity. And we consider the fact that it was recording a time of over 1,600 years. A span of 1,600 years that it was written down was recorded by 40 different men, at, at a very minimum, 40 different men. And the fact that not only did 40 different men record this, but they recorded it in three separate languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and still yet the message remained the same. 
Throughout all this time, the message remained the same. That shows the unity. That shows majesty to me. But again, even considering the Gospel accounts. These four books are four separate men from four walks of life. Spent three years with a man and were able to recount that three years. And yes, they, because of their, their differences in, in lifestyles, because of the differences in who they were, there are some differences in the way they recorded it, but the, every account harmonizes with the other. And you know, that, that really impresses me because I think of the fact that I can't get together with, with three other men and go for a weekend somewhere and then come back and every one of us have the same uh, uh, you know, telling of what happened that weekend. But yet these men were able to spend all this time with our Savior and be able to come back and be able to record these words, being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words down and, and, and once again show the unity in God's Word. But not just the unity. I also think of the perseverance. The perseverance of God's Word is a testament to the majesty of God. You look at some countries who have made it illegal. Illegal to own any religious literature, how it has been banned. In fact, even in our own, our own country, in America, it's becoming ever more obvious that in many places the Bible just simply isn't welcome. We don't welcome the idea of the Bible being in our schools, the, the, even in one sense the Ten Commandments being in most courtrooms. We don't, we don't welcome that, thing, that, that idea so much. And interestingly enough, in 1408, the Catholic Church itself said, we don't want certain translations. We're going to go ahead and just ban those. We don't want the people having these translations. We only want translations that are approved by us. So it's obvious that there's been many times in history that, that God's spoken Word has been banned. But not just banned, it's been made several attempts to completely be snuffed out. In fact, just recently, uh, countries uh, like Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, they joined Russia in ordering that all religious literature be destroyed. They took, they bring all your Bibles, everything that you have that's religious, we're going to have a great big old book burning, we're going to get rid of it. This was done in the, in the hopes to create unity. We just take away all these things that create division and, and, and we're just going to burn them all up and we'll do it our way and create unity. In fact, looking back through history, we can see times to which the, the Word of God was as strong as a rushing wind. A rushing wind that, that descended upon nations and it was strong and growing. And then we look at times when it was not much more than a whisper. A whisper that, that if spoken, you might be afraid, was, would be carried away in the wind and we wouldn't hear it again. Yet through all these difficulties, the Bible has persevered. It has is, it is persevered to what we still have today. In a time where it once again is, is growing. And the fact that this word is understandable. The understandability of this word and the fact that it's the greatest message of all times. You know, we consider in school we are asked to learn so many of these documents of, of history and great literature. You think of things like the Constitution and the Preamble, Gettysburg Address. You think of all these different documents that people say, these are so important, we have to learn these. And I'm not trying to take away from the importance that they hold to our nation. But none of those documents had the power to save the soul. Not a single one of those documents had the power to save the soul. Now you consider how much time it takes to study those documents, to study some of these things, and in the languages that they were spoken in, sometimes it's like, I'm, you have to have a law degree just to understand what's, what the laws of the, of the country are and what, what things that are pointed out in the Constitution and all these different amendments that we have. And Yeah, we have to have some really smart people to understand these things. At least that's what we're, we're told a lot of times. But the Bible... The greatest message of all, greater than all these other documents, there is no scholars needed 
for the message of the Bible. There is no need for a doctor, for a lawyer. In fact, the, the, the Greek that most of the New Testament was written in, the Koine Greek, was the every man's language. There's just not that need to weed through these vast complexities of, of this Word, yet it still has such an amazing and powerful message. That to me, again, it shows the majesty of God. Now, when I think of God's majesty, when I think of all this, there's another word that comes to mind. A word that is a little bit less known today. We, we still use it, but oftentimes in, in the world today, even in the, in, the, in the religious world, this word is taken and used in a way that it wasn't really intended to. And that's reverence. Reverence comes to mind when I think of God's majesty. The definition of reverence is deep respect and fear. And this is where I want to get into to Nehemiah today. To Nehemiah, I think we have an excellent example of what true reverence is. In fact, if you want to turn over to Nehemiah 8, that's where we're going to spend a great majority of our time. In Nehemiah 8, we have a study, uh, we can study uh, of these people who have a mindset, a certain mindset, and that mindset was to know God, but not only to know God, but also to obey God. They were, as Colossians 3 points out, uh, people who had their hearts set on things above. They weren't focused just on what was going on on this earth, but they were focusing their hearts, their attention, their focus on God. Now, the first thing I want to point out in Nehemiah 8 is that in, um, in verse 3, I'm sorry, I apologize, it wasn't verse 3, it's in... Let's uh, let's read it verses uh, eight or chapter eight verses one through three. Chapter eight verses one through three. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that is in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of uh, of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. Before the men and women could, uh, before the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verse verse three was what I was looking for. They they came together from morning until midday. Now, if we understand that morning till midday, when we look at how the Jews kept time, morning was when the sun came up. Around 6 a.m., so to speak, was morning for them. These people got together at 6 a.m., and they were up until about noon. You consider it's about six hours that they were here, and they were listening to God's Word. Now you think, oh, that's, that's a long time, granted, but I don't want to take away really how amazing this is that these people did this. Because when you look at the context of what they just come through, look back over in chapter 6. In chapter 6, uh, verses uh, 15... Chapter 6, 15, we read, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. So now in 52 days, these people have been working on the wall. They've been working on the wall, around, uh, rebuilding around the city. And on the 25th day of Elul, they finished this wall. Now again, understanding Jewish timekeeping and how they kept track of days... Uh, the, 20, the, day of, or the month of Elul would have been about the sixth month. That's the sixth month of the year for them. And the 25th day is near the end of that month. In fact, most months in the Jewish calendar have about 28 to 29 days. So now, flipping back over to chapter 8, we read, When the seventh month had came, at the end of chapter 7, when the seventh month had came, the children of Israel were in their cities. They have now moved in, and now all the people gathered together as one man. And then skipping down to verse 2, uh, 
They, they, the priest, Ezra the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men and women, all who could hear and understand, on the first day of the seventh month. Now with our understanding that they finished the building of this wall on the 25th day of the sixth month. And we know that the months have 20 to 29 days. And now here on the first day of the seventh month, that's just three to four days later. Three to four days later, after working 52 days on building this wall, on moving their families back into their homes, uh, the, the idea that they were just kind of poking around and doing a little bit of work, that's not what was going on. This was some real hard work that they were doing. They were rebuilding walls. It says, it, it describes it as putting timber upon timber and stone upon stone. A lot of effort went into this. And I imagine that these people, if you consider, if you put yourself in their position, they are probably sunburnt. They are probably sore, probably still blistered. Their muscles are still tired. They're still recovering. And yet, on the first day of the seventh month, they stand up. They get up at 6 a.m. And they stand up and they listen for six hours. And they don't just listen, but it says in verse 3 that they were attentive. They were really focused on what was being read. Now I want to ask you a question. What got those people up? Who got those people up at 6 a.m. to hear this? Keep that question in the back of your mind and consider it. When we consider that they, were, that they had gotten up, after all this that had happened, they got up and they, they did this on the first day of the seventh month. Let's continue reading, starting in verse 4. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the, pur- for the purpose, and beside him, at his right hand, stood the, these, uh, these several men. I'm not going to even uh, attempt to pronounce all their names. But he stood six on one side, seven on the other. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was standing above all the people. And when he, when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And again, we have several other men listed, 13 men here that, that stood again at, in place. And they were there for a reason. It says in the latter part of verse 7, they were there to help the people. Them and the Levites helped the people understand the law. And the people stood in their place. And so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. And they gave the sense in helping them to understand the reading. Now in verse 9, I want you to look at what happens. I want to look at their reaction to the reading of the law. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink, to send portions, and they rejoiced greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now continuing on, we're going to read 13 through the rest of the through the rest of the chapter. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests... And the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. 
and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one in the, on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or in the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and the open square of the gate of Ephraim. And so the whole assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and sat under the booths for since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until the day the children of Israel had not, or until that day the children of Israel had not done so, and there was great gladness. And there was great gladness. Also day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. And the first thing I want to point out from this passage, from this, under, uh, this account that we have of what happened in, in the days of Nehemiah, is that it is recorded three times that the law of God was read, that the, the God's Word was open and was read. We have it mentioned on day one, they read from the law. On day two, they read from the law. Seven days of this festival, they read from the law. Now, when we understand how it is that this, that this was recorded, they didn't have Microsoft Word to type all this information down. They didn't have typewriters. They didn't have an abundance of paper and pen. They had very limited supplies. And so when you used a drop of ink, you got every use out of that drop of ink that you can. And so if you repeat a word more than once, to us that should look like a flashing neon sign that says, wake up, this is something that you need to pay attention to. Three times it was mentioned that they opened God's Word. That is something we need to pay attention to. That signifies the importance of God's Word to them. And so, so I get back to the question, who got the people up? Who got these people up? Do we read of Ezra or of Nehemiah going around door to door and waking these people up? Do we read of some commandment saying, get up on on, on this day and and study God's Word? The people is what we see that got these people up. This people people decided that that they had to hear the Word of God. In fact, it could be said that they hungered for the Word of God. They thirsted for the Word of God. They are so incredibly wanting the Word of God and to understand the Word of God that they created a podium so the speaker could be heard better and so that greater understanding. They had these men come up and help them understand they really desired understanding from the Word of God. And when the book was opened, what do we see the people do? We see them stand. We see them stand. They show that they respected God's Word. Those of you in the military, you, you, you probably have seen this, I assume, when something or someone of, of greater authority comes in among you, you, you stand at attention. You show respect in that sense. That's what they were doing. They recognized the authority this law had over them. They stood and showed their respect. But then notice as they worshipped, they worshipped, they bowed their faces down. Bowed their faces down. They raised their hands. You know, I've heard that it showed this idea of raising your hands. It's this idea of showing when you come up to someone and say, look, I have nothing. I am helpless. I'm not here to hurt you. I am here because I need your help. This idea that they bowed their heads, they raised their hands to God. They were showing great reverence. They were showing this fear, this deep respect for God and for His law. And it wasn't an arbitrary fear. It wasn't a fear that they were afraid that He might just strike them dead right there where they stood. It was a fear because they understood exactly who God was. They understood the power that He had over their souls. 
And we see that they did this, that they were not just there, they were not just merely standing there out in the sun, but that they were attentive for six hours. Now i got to say, I have a hard time being attentive for about 20 minutes. These people were attentive for six hours. I can't go to a movie and watch the whole movie and not have my brain kind of drift off somewhere. These people were so desiring to understand God's Word. They were fully and physically and mentally there for this six hours. And it was something that was very personal to them. Very personal. As we saw in verse 9, when they heard the Word of God, when they saw that there was something that was not the same in their lives, that did not match the Word of God, they wept. They wept. We see the the emotion that they had and how personal this was. We need to try to be like that. We we need to try to have that same personal uh, attachment to God and to His Word. Not only when we hear when, when, when there's something that is, not a, that is a miss, something that is not connected between us and God. Obviously, we need to have that there. We need to have that, that personal touch that, that when something we see is different, we're going to make changes. We want to do that. But we also need to have that same personal attachment when we tell other people. When we, when we do this idea that, that denominations around the world say that we should do, and, and sometimes we kind of go, okay, I don't want to say that because that's too denominational. When we witness for God, when we do that, we need to be able to go out and to make it personal. We need to tell people how God has personally affected us because each and every one of us has been personally affected by God. If we are having the right relationship that we are to have with our Lord, it's going to affect us in a very personal sense. Give you an example. I can tell you exactly how it affected me. There's so many ways, but one that stands out in my mind was, was not too long ago. I was really just, I was so excited. I, I, I was going through this time when I was learning a lot about the Bible that I, that I just had for years, had, I just hadn't gave it the right attention that I should have. And I was really growing. And all of a sudden it dawned on me one day, I've got family members that I have a, I have a need to talk to. I have friends, I have family that I love and that are doing things that aren't in accordance to God's will, but they think they are. And I can't truly say that I love them and not mention to them some of the error that they are in. When that dawned on me, that was hard. That was a heavy weight because that's, that's tough. That's not the fun thing to do. That's not the thing that we do around the family reunion where we all sit around the table and enjoy one another's company. No, that's something that's personal. That's one-on-one. That's not always going to end with, with happy feelings. And, and it was something that I really, quite honestly, I didn't want to do it. Maybe I can find a way out of this. And so in my mind, I started trying to find ways that, no, this is somebody else's responsibility. This is something that I don't have to do. All the way to the extent to where my, in my mind I was saying, if I could find a way to prove that either God's Word is wrong or that God doesn't exist. I would be out of this and I wouldn't have to do it. And I struggled with this for a while. And, and one Sunday on my way to church, I was, I was uh, out of town. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was out of town traveling back in to, to worship over in Georgetown with the family over there. And, and I just realized I'd been driving for a while and I said, I need to say a prayer that I get here safely. And, and as I said this prayer... In my mind, I couldn't help but remember all the things that I'd known, that I'd been taught from a young age. Uh, the, the things that we've discussed earlier about the majesty of God. I couldn't help but look around me and see as I was driving over this bridge, this huge lake that was completely still. There wasn't 
uh, there wasn't a wave on it, and the reflection of the other side in the sky was bouncing off it like a mirror. And the beauty of that lake, and on the other side of me was a field, and the dew from the morning was still on every blade of grass, shining like every blade of grass had been, had been just adorned with a diamond. And I remember as I, as I prayed to God, my prayer of getting to church safely very quickly changed to a prayer of forgiveness. And I said, God, I know that You did all this. I know that You created this world. I know that through Christ I have the strength to do what You've called me to do. And, and it felt like a burden was taken off of me. It doesn't, say that, it doesn't change the fact that it was still hard to go to those family members. It was still hard to go to those friends and to confront them and to, to lovingly and patiently try to tell them uh, the, God's truth. But it reminded me. It helped me to, to grow in that sense. We need to have the ability to not hold back those emotions. Sometimes in this life, we are trying to be pushed away. You know, to be a man, you, you, well, a lot of times when kids are crying, we say, hey, grow up and be a man. Grow up and be a man. Don't have those emotions. And that has unfortunately affected the way that we correlate the way that we react that we the relationships we have with other people this wasn't what was going on we see that they were crying we don't read it was just the women that were crying when the people heard the word of god it was personal to them we need to have that same personal relationship we need to have that same reverence in our lives <clears throat> the next thing that we see is the second day <clears throat> excuse me the second day these people gathered together for something that we do oftentimes. They gathered together for a more intense study. I said, okay, we've looked at God's Word, but we saw something in there. You know what? We need to look at that more. I'm not sure if I quite understand that. We do that sometimes. I get together with friends and we have a more a personal study. We get together with someone that we know has more wisdom than us, someone that's studied the Bible longer. We say, can you help me understand this better? We get together and we pray to God to help us understand this better. But we do the same thing. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were having a Bible study. They were having a study of God's law. And in this study, they were looking at this festival of booths. They look at this and they see that this is something that, that we haven't been doing. Look at this festival of booths. In fact, on the 15th day of the, sec of the seventh month is when this festival of booths was to be held. Now, when we consider the fact that they are now on the second day of the seventh month, that's just a couple weeks away. That's just 13 days away, uh, just a little under two weeks that they have to get ready. Now, they could have made, they could have said, well, wow, you know what? This is what God's law says. We need to do it. But we got to get all these branches. We got to build this thing. We only got two weeks. And look at all the people we have to build houses. We'll do this next year. There, there's a seventh month next year. We'll do it then. We don't see them having that attitude. We see that they get ready. They go and they cut down the branches they need. They start building and they observe the festival of booze. And what happens? What do we read at the end of verse 17? The opposite of what was going on in verse 9. And there was a very great gladness. When they saw the difference between them and what God's law had said, it broke their hearts. They were crushed. But when they went, turned around, when they started to follow God, they see, you see this gladness that came in, that lifted their spirits, the happiness that they enjoyed. They had this attitude. They had this attitude that said, what does God's Word say? 
That's what I want to know. What does God's Word say? And when I know what God's Word say, that's what I'm going to do. That's the attitude that we need to have. They could have looked at it and said, we haven't been doing this in the past, but, uh, but you know, and there's some changes we need to make. No, they looked at it with this attitude of, here am I. I have work that I see needs to be done. I'm going to have a mind to work, but that mind is going to come from a mind of reverence to God. A mind that fears God and that seeks to obey Him. They had this attitude of God is speaking, we better listen. God is speaking to us, we better listen. We better listen to what it is He says. And I think they had this attitude because they were able to see what God sees. They looked around, they could have, you know, know, we ask ourselves sometimes, what's the point? What's the purpose of Nehemiah? And the purpose maybe is, some might think, well, the purpose is the rebuilding of Jerusalem. The rebuilding of a city. There was a broken city and the walls were torn down and we, we see the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That is not the purpose of Nehemiah. The ne- purpose of Nehemiah is not a broken city. The purpose of Nehemiah is a broken people. A broken people who are rebuilt by God. Rebuilt relationships to God. <clears throat> They looked around and they saw a broken city. They saw a broken wall. But they looked at it and they saw what God saw. When He saw that, He saw a people that had been scattered. He saw a people that needed to be drawn back to Him. They had this understanding. <clears throat> Excuse me. They had this understanding that this was God's Word. This was not just Ezra's Word. This was not just Nehemiah, the Levites. This was not just their words. This was God speaking to them. And they would settle for absolutely nothing less than the opportunity to hear that Word and to obey that Word. So, so, so now, let's make a comparison. Let's make a comparison to how that relates to us today. Let's consider maybe we have a, a, a close friend, uh, two friends that, that are married, and that relationship that, that we have with them, that friendship is so close that maybe we're kind of given an inside view of their family life that others don't. They don't see this inside view, and we start to see something that kind of worries us. It's troublesome. We go to them. Maybe they're having some sort of problem. We go to them, and we, we try to convince them and to, to encourage them to, to take care of this. Don't let this continue on. Make, make amends. Get, grow back together. But over time, things continue to get worse. People's feelings begin to get hurt. Maybe things become more public than they were, and eventually this couple decides that they're going to separate. They're going to, they're going to move apart. Now we can go back to that couple and we can tell them, you know, don't forget the promises that you've made to God. Don't forget the promises that you've made to each other. If there's children involved, don't forget your children and the, the example that you're setting for them. We can try to persuade them and maybe possibly through this persuasion they decide, okay, we're not going to separate. We're, we're going to get back together. So often, so often we look at that and we just want to, we just want to say, yes! Victory! We, we did it! We saved this family from, from, from divorce. We brought them back together. But looking at Nehemiah 8, I, I would like us to consider that we might not have fully had a victory there. And see, in Nehemiah 8, as we read, it wasn't about the rebuilding of the wall. They could have rebuilt this wall, but it wasn't until the people were rebuilt. The relationship was reunited. In this situation with a marriage, it isn't about just looking like a marriage again. Just like it wasn't about looking like Jerusalem again. It's about a, a, a relationship rebuilt. Rebuilt to one another. Rebuilt with their children. Rebuilt with God. That's the kind of repentance. That's the kind of 
of reverence that needs to be seen in that repentance. <clears throat> Might consider again another way that we can look at it. Maybe someone who quits attending the, the worship services. We all know someone, and, and we, we won't say their name, but we know someone who needs to come back to the worship services. And maybe we can talk them into coming back to worship. And they show up, they go, okay, okay, I'm going to be there. On Sunday morning, I'm going to be there. And then Sunday evening, okay, I'm going to come on Sunday evening. And on Wednesdays, I'm going to come on Wednesdays too, and we start seeing them come back to worship. The very real temptation is to say, that Christian is restored. They're, they're good. They're back. That's what we want to see. But let us not forget, we can't judge true repentance. We can't judge that. Only they can judge that. But that is what is required before them to be considered truly restored. They have to have that repentance. The repentance that we see in Nehemiah. The desire to look at God's Word and go, okay, I see what God's Word and what's going on in my life doesn't match. And I want to make a change. I want to make that change. I don't just want to look like I've made that change. I want to actually have made that change. And in our lives today, <laughs> that's, that's something hard. That's something that's hard. We hear so often times, it's like, uh, we can't change. We can't make changes. Changes are difficult. Changes are hard. Changes aren't fun. And so you ask yourselves, well, how? How then did these people in Nehemiah, how did they do it? How is it so much easier for them? And I'm going to say, I don't believe it was easy. I don't believe it was easy, but it stemmed from their minds. It stemmed from people who, as I said before, saw what God saw. When they looked at the broken city, they didn't see just a broken city. They looked at their relationships. They saw that broken relationship. When they looked at their lives, they didn't, wouldn't have just saw a situation that needed to be changed. If they looked at a marriage, if they looked at, at some, some way that they have fallen away from God, they would have looked at it how God looks at it. And they would have desired, that would have made that changing so much easier. They would have had a want, a, a real thirst to change. And that's what we see through them. And if that's the way that we are today, changing isn't hard. Changing, in fact, is something that you cannot even stop whenever you have that sort of mindset. In fact, the only thing that makes change hard is the desire not to change. You know, not too long ago, uh, Holly started a diet, and I started it with her. And it, it was a diet to help our, our, our bodies. It was a diet to, to help get rid of some infections that, that had grown up in our bodies over years of not eating healthy. And, um, you know, there's something that we weren't necessarily had to cut out, but it would have been good, and that's bacon. Bacon. Now, I don't know if it shows or not, but I, don't, I, I like bacon. I don't want to cut bacon out. Change in that habit there. In, that, in my food, uh, in my diet, change is something that's hard for me because I don't want to change. I don't. But consider someone who maybe has had a heart attack. Consider someone who has had some sort of heart disease and has come back and survived, and the doctor looks at them and says, if you want to live, you have to cut out bacon. Bacon's going to have to be gone from your diet. That's not a hard change to make. It might not be the easiest thing to hear, and it might still be hard to do, but it's something that you desire to do. As that person would say, yeah, I can cut bacon out because I want to live. I don't want to die. That's the same sort of relationship. That's the same sort of mindset that we should have when we hear God's Word. I want to change because I don't want to die. I want to live. I want to grow. I want to live in this light as we talked about in the class this morning. I don't want to live in darkness. I don't want to live in that death. You know, with all this in mind, this idea of living, this idea of changing, I think of one last way that, that God's majesty is shown. And that's through His love. Through His love, we see God's majesty. 
If you want to turn over to John 15, <clears throat> John 15 and verse 13, we, have, we read a, uh, a really powerful passage that tells us what true, what the ultimate love is. John 15 and verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Greater love, this ultimate love, is the giving of one's own life for his friends. Jesus goes on to tell us here that you are my friend if you keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you are my friends. But what are we really? What are we really, even though we are friends, if we keep his commandments? Turn over to Romans real quick. Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> In Romans 5, starting in verse 7, I want you to consider this is what we really are. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Consider those words. For a righteous man, for a really good man, someone might think about dying. They might actually even do it. But for someone who is just a good man, they might, they might even contemplate it a little bit. But God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ says if we keep His commandments, we are His friend, but we are still sinners. If there has ever been a person who sinned, they are a sinner. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Every single one of us is a sinner. And yet, Christ paid that ultimate, showed that ultimate love. He died for us. That to me shows God's majesty in every sense of the word. It shows His impressive stateliness and His beauty. It shows His royal power. That is a king that I want to serve. That is a master that I want to be a slave to. So I want to ask you a question. Are, are things right between you and God this morning? Is there something in your life that is not right? Maybe it's the fact that you haven't, you haven't yet been saved. Maybe you haven't yet become a Christian, a follower of Him. But maybe you have. Maybe this is a step that you have taken. You are a friend. You are keeping His commandments. But something has risen up that has started to separate you. Maybe there is a need for this rebuilding of a relationship in your life to Christ. Thanks to the grace of God, we have that opportunity. We have that invitation. He is always beckoning for us to come to Him. In just a moment, we're going to open up our, our song books. If you want to go ahead and open them up to song number 254. <clears throat> song 254 on Jordan's stormy banks. This idea that we will rest in the chorus. It says we will rest in the fair and happy land by and by just across on the evergreen shore. Sing the song of Moses and the Lamb by and by and dwell with Jesus evermore. That is, that's, that's truly a wonderful, wonderful thought that we will rest with Jesus that we will rest from this this trouble this stormy life that we live in on this side of eternity we will have that rest but only if that relationship only if that if we are a people that are rebuilt that are built with God if that be your will if you have that need today as we stand and sing this song I ask you please I encourage you come forward as we stand and sing